Hello and welcome to another episode of Coffee and Conservation, a laid-back podcast where we discuss everything from cool animals, conservation, the environment, and what we can do to help. I'm Robert Pike, a field journalist for the Global Conservation Force, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mike Veal, a world-renowned rhino conservationist and president of the Global Conservation Force. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Coffee and Conservation. My name is Robert, and I'm joined along with my co-host, Mike Veal. And today, our special guest is Lauren Diaz. Lauren is a freshwater ecologist who has worked primarily with pond breeding amphibians and hillbender salamanders in Southeast U.S. She is currently a PhD student at Oregon State University, where she is using structured decision-making tools to help form management of steelhead trout in Central California Valley. (sighs) <laughs> I, just to, I just want to point out that that was that's probably the best I've probably ever read, um, which is which is which is saying a lot. But Lauren, already like we got to get you back on after you get your PhD, so I can interview or I can introduce you as Doctor Lauren Diaz. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited for that. A lot of people don't use the doctor. I'm like, why would you not? Yeah, right. That's you the did whole all that thing. schooling. Yeah, you went through all that grind just to get there. So. Yeah, <laughs> I will no, use it. <laughs> what? Yeah, you got to put it like on your business coat and like, or your business card and like your license plate and like, <laughs> you got to get like a badge. Yeah, but, I love the idea of like a non-gendered like term to, it's not like miss or missus, like has nothing mm-hmm. to do with if you're married or not. It's just like your accomplishments. Yeah, sure. how you're it's like purely, uh, it's like a badge of honor for all your hard work. Mm-hmm. It really, really is. I mean, because I mean, that's so few. I mean, like, because that's so that's so much school. Like, I mean, I have a bachelor's degree, and I thought that was a lot of school. But you, yeah. Um, I mean, my master's took three years, and so now this is going to take probably five years. Wow. Uh, so, <laughs> and then I will be your... probably thirty-one by the time I'm done with school. Which wow. Some people don't look at it as that, you know, as mm-hmm. the right thing to do. Um, definitely. What? <laughs> no way. That's the coolest thing of... to do conversations with my family that doesn't they don't really get it they're like why are you still in school we don't understand oh what no (laughs) now what specifically are you getting your phd in um so i am doing it in fishery science which is totally different from anything that i have ever done um so i got my undergrad and my master's in wildlife biology um so that usually means like terrestrial things and like herps um so i worked a lot with amphibians and snakes and crocodiles and, and not crocodiles crocodilians um, turtles, all of that kind of stuff before. Um, I've done some things with birds. Um, but then when I started my master's on hellbenders, I just loved the field work associated with it so much. Like the kinds of data we were collecting, we were snorkeling in streams every day, um, flipping all the little rocks and finding all the little insects. And, um, I couldn't picture myself not working on all those other things too. So I kind of transitioned into the like stream ecology fisheries world. Um, and I am learning a lot. It's very steep learning curve, um, but I'm happy to be here. I reckon you and Mike are probably gonna hit it off great because Mike loves the the fishies and the and the scaly stuff and the turtles and yeah. Uh, oh yeah, I'm a big I'm a big herp nerd. So uh, herp tiles uh, for mm-hmm. folks outside of the industry. Uh, I mean, it's pretty cool because how I actually stumbled across uh, what you were working on was. One of my friends who's a, a biologist working on actually pangolin stuff with us, 
had shared your Hellbender written article, and I was like, dude, this is so cool. And I like was like head deep into the thing. I was like, maybe she would want to be on the podcast. I wonder if she's ever talked mm-hmm. about Hellbenders on a podcast. We got to talk about this. And <laughs> it was so cool because, uh, I mean, really, social media makes it a lot easier to find the right person <laughs> and find the contacts. So I was like, okay, so uh, here's a link to the school. And then uh, I actually was able to find your Instagram and send you a message like, hey, um, we're doing this podcast and we're talking about everything conservation. You want to join? And so it was really cool. Yeah. Well, I super appreciate that you reached out, especially now that I see that I'm in the co- like company of people who study like rhinos and poaching. Like that feels sure. like the highest level of like wildlife conservation, you know, <laughs> um, hellbenders and salamanders, they don't really get that kind of attention. So it's nice to kind of represent that. Um, but yeah, and that article, um, I, still am like shocked that it has gone like as viral as it did so it's like it's a blog post for from um beyond the river bend which is run by um somebody that i went to undergrad with madison ficka works for great smoky mountains national park just gonna plug that yeah um, do it um but yeah i wrote that kind of like very casually like did not really think much of it and then it just started circulating on like all of these facebook groups for like months and months <laughs> Um, that's and so yeah, cool, that's the most circula- circulation anything I've ever done has gotten. Sure. That does it feel like kind of weird to be approached by like people are like, Hey, listen, this article's like, you're kind of like a celebrity almost. Um, yeah, it's weird. Actually, one of my advisors like, um, forwarded it to me the other day. One of his friends sent it to him and not knowing mm. that I was his student. He was like, Oh, look at this cool article. And he was like, um, that's <laughs> awesome. my student who wrote that. Yep. That's interesting. <laughs> that's the professor clout right there. He's like, yeah, just my student. No big deal. <laughs> that's awesome. So, yeah, it's kind of weird how far it's gotten. Yeah. Now look at you. I mean, doing podcasts <laughs> with two dudes. It's pretty rad. I know. I Never thought I'd be here. <laughs> oh, no way. <laughs> well, at least like in the kind of public like sure. podcasting world, sure. you know. Sure. You know what's no, funny? It's- so when um we just had we we're finishing out two previous episodes. So this week we had uh our buddy Hein, um, who was actually one of my instructors as an anti-poaching ranger when I went into training, and then we had Marlena and Xander. Hein has never been on a pod- podcast either, but uh-huh. He's got like conservation gold content that a lot of folks aren't hearing. And this is actually, it's funny because you mentioned it because it's actually one of the reasons like, I was like, we got to start our own podcast because you have like, there's so many blends of talk shows and whatnot, but really getting like your voice out there is like a big goal of ours and people like you because you're out in the field doing the real thing and, and they're there are these little critters that need a lot of help and people are always Mm -hmm. like, they think conservation has to be, you know, the great apes or rhinos or elephants. And they don't realize that there are things in their backyard that need help. And so like giving you a platform to talk and then um, our listeners are pretty diverse already. uh, You might find somebody who can help you even more. I mean, maybe, maybe you have somebody who does a little photojournalism for you or does a video about it or, uh, you know, you never know, like the connectivity of it all comes together. I bet you if I told Marlena more about this project, uh, Marlena was on our last project project and she does conservation storytelling films. Um, I bet you she would be 
stupid excited about this. Like she would just be like, be over the moon. There are these salamanders, <laughs> and like we could, she'd be like, she'd be in the water, like right next to you, Nat Geo style, like <laughs> all about it. Yeah, and um, it's funny that you mentioned like people don't really understand the conservation needs in their own backyard. Um, when I was, I did all my research in Western North Carolina. And um, in a lot of like highly recreated areas, um, like national forest rivers that were full of like kids swimming around and doing a bunch of stuff and all of their families. And whenever they'd see what we were, they'd see like a line of people snorkeling in wetsuits and be like super weirded out, have no idea what we were doing. Um, and we tell them, oh, we're, you know, looking for hellbenders. They're um, a giant salamander. Um, they live there here in the river that you're swimming in there they would like freak out they've like never heard of that they've lived in that area their entire lives Mm -hmm. did not know that hellbenders existed even though they're truly like massive like i can't imagine that existing in (laughs) in your community and not knowing about it sure yeah exactly like it existing and people never seeing it do you ever feel like so first of all do you know who jeremy wade is that river monster show yeah yeah did you did you do you feel like him when you're like explaining to the public you're like there's this large salamander and <laughs> and like people are looking at you like all bug eyed like what's in the water like mm-hmm. yeah a I little bit yeah <laughs> no okay so for those for those of you including myself what exactly is a hellbender salamander yes of course um so a hellbender is um a giant salamander it's the only one that lives in North America. So it's related to the Chinese and Japanese giant salamanders, which are like truly massive. Like I think there is a River Monsters episode about one of them. Yes, yeah, so like, like three and four feet long. Really? Yeah. Um, like just like the size of a medium sized dog, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, that's terrifying. Yeah, and so <laughs> um, it's interesting that actually hellbenders exist in North America, um, and their cousins are so far away. Um, it has to do with like kind of glaciation. Like there's a lot sure. of plant species that exhibit that same like geographic distribution. Um, but yeah, and so they're the only ones in their family, um, here and they get to be about two-ish feet long when they're adults. Um, so cool. They are fully aquatic. So they spend their entire time in the river, um, like never come onto land. Um, they look a lot like just kind of a turd, honestly, like they're brown and wrinkly. (laughs) Like when you pick one up out of the water, it's just like, like a, wrinkly brown lump in your hand. <laughs> 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 a lot of people call call them ugly. Um, they're more ugly cute, you know? Sure. Like, so yeah. ugly that it's cute. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, they're also called snot otters or um, oh, lasagna oh, sides because of all their little wrinkles. <laughs> I love that. That's the best thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> so this I, I would really imagine cool. with this then that there there's truly no flattering photo of the poor little guys when you when yeah. you're getting them yeah there's no, no glamour shots <laughs> i mean there's some like cool shots like there's yeah. like shots that show how like massive they are you know mm-hmm. and especially when you see them underwater um they they can be really colorful um like when you take them out, they're just kind of brown, but in the water you see like all the little like greens and spots and yellows and stuff like that. Cool. Oh, they're like a lot like um, trout. Like when you see a trout undisturbed, you see like iridescence and spots yes. and that's really cool. Exactly. And you see them like when they're sitting in the river, you can see the water kind of like going through all their little skin folds and like really? waving it around. Yeah. So that's how they, and that's how they they breathe underwater, right? The skin folds actually add more surface to absorb oxygen 
Yes, they breathe uh, primarily through their skin. So they have gills when they're larvae, but then they get absorbed after like a year. That's awesome. So, it's pretty cool yeah. to do that. I've told you, I'm a nerd for the herps, dude. Yeah. The inflexus, really right? Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Now, before I derail it with one of our first uh, kind of fun things, hellbenders, do they suffer from the chytrid crisis? Um, so, interesting that you mentioned that. Um, so, we there's been a lot of studies looking into this, um, and they definitely carry it. Like, it's definitely present in a lot of hellbender populations. I actually published a small article on it related to the larvae. um, And probably, like, I don't remember the exact numbers now, but, like, 50%-ish of all of the larvae we caught. Um, So, chytrid is a um, fungal skin infection that affects amphibians. And um, it's been, like, a... It's pretty much decimated, like, global amphibian populations since it was discovered in the um, 80s or 90s. Um, and so, but different species and different regions kind of react really differently. Um, so it's really bad in like, like high alpine lakes out West with like, um, red-legged frogs and, yeah. frogs. and the yellow-legged um, mountain frogs. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's pretty de- detrimental. Really? Yeah. And then in the Southeast, it's actually, um, even though everything has it, it doesn't seem to do anything. Um, probably has to do something with like the temperatures, like it's too hot. Um, but then in cold mountain streams, you would think that the temperature would be optimal for it to kind of become infectious. Um, but yeah, it doesn't really seem to affect them. They, sure. Yeah. There has been um, cases where hellbenders have died from chytrid, um, like in captivity, I think it's been mm. um, documented, but yeah, in the wild, it's not a thing yet. Well, that's, so that's the- a good positive then. Yeah. I mean, maybe there's something in the future there that would help other uh, amphibious species uh, in the long run, understanding what's how they survive it. Because, I mean, right now, so, like, I, I've heard it described as the, the uh, silent extinction crisis for amphibians with chytrid. Uh, and I know, like, like you mentioned, uh, basically, like, some of the alpine species, and I know some of the, a lot of the tropical species are also just not, they can't cope with it. Um, so, I mean... Fingers crossed that our own uh, backyard river monster there could really be something that shows shows us how to take a different path rather than like extreme treatments or. Um, yeah, a lot of people are working with um, the microbiome, looking into that right now. Um, I know this um, Emily Nolan, who just graduated from Tennessee State, was working on um, like interactions between the microbiome and chytrid. Um, oh, we got we have to see if we can catch up with her too. That would be <laughs> that would be just so such a cool episode Uh yeah um and so that's kind of a thing that people are starting to look into is why different species are affected differently and what we can harness from that maybe um almost like um like inoculate like bodies of water with different like like biotic things that could combat chytrid. I'm not, really this is not my realm of expertise, so I probably sound like an idiot. But. No, not at all. I mean, believe me, you, I, I did the three of you, or the three of us, I'm the least qualified to be talking about this, so you're you're okay. But, like, what's what's the Hellbender's, like, population? I mean, is it a is it a pretty steady population right now, or? Like- um, so, it depends super regionally. Um, there are places, they're definitely in decline range-wide. Sure. Um, so they're in a lot of trouble. They were um, petitioned to be listed under the Endangered Species Act um, 
like 10 ish years ago, and that was declined um, because we just don't know. And there's too many populations where the status is unknown. Uh-huh. Um, so, where I was working in Western North Carolina, there's still really, really great populations there, um, mostly in the national forests and protected land. Um, but in um, a lot of the fringes of their range, um, like Alabama, Illinois, they've been pretty much extirpated. Uh-huh. Um, in the northern portions, like around Ohio, they're doing really bad too. Um, and there's a lot of also like genetic variation in these populations. They've kind of been um, divided into smaller like diversity units. Sure. Um, and then there's a subspecies called the Ozark Hellbender, which only exists in Missouri. And that one is federally endangered. Cool. Um, I mean, not cool, yeah. but that's cool. That's a cool name. That's a, yeah. that's such a wrong place to put a cool, like critically <laughs> endangered, like, all right, but that's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> um, so wait, how did you even get into this? Like why, why salamanders? Why, why all this? Like how did, how, what, what got you into this? Um, I feel like most of my path in life has been kind of just like what, like what happened, like what I fell into, <laughs> honestly, um, <laughs> if I'm being honest. I love it. Um, so I did my undergrad in wildlife and fit wildlife biology um, at University of Florida. Cool. And I, snakes were the first thing that really like brought me into the herb world. Oh, cool. Um, what snakes? I species? love snakes. <laughs> um, and um, I really wanted to work with snakes, but there's, that if there's anything that just has like no jobs available, it's mm. snakes research. Um, really? Yeah, I feel like it's not super popular. <laughs> it's so. What's what snakes did you hope to work with, or what what ones piqued your interest in that? Um, pine snakes are definitely oh pine my snakes. favorite and have always been my favorite. Yeah, cool. Um, and then obviously like the cool venomous stuff because that's like what's badass, you know? Yeah, it, <laughs> the the hot species, as we would say in uh, wildlife uh, wildlife care. Yeah, they come with the yeah. red mark. But um, I started volunteering with Florida Fish and Wildlife on a gopher frog project, which is um, kind of what got me into all of this. And I was like going around netting for tadpoles and I realized I really like tadpoles. <laughs> Heck yeah. And, yeah. Um, and it was just like cool research. Like I was um, doing a lot. I was like surveying like ephemeral ponds. And so every dip net scoop is full of like just alien creatures, like <laughs> all these like cool larval dra- like dragonflies and um like yeah and so that's kind of what got me into it and i bounced around doing a bunch of other amphibian stuff and then just like the hellbender position was advertised and i needed to do a master's so i jumped on it (laughs) um not really knowing where it was going to take me um (laughs) you basically like uh formally took like the research and volunteer job that like most of us kids that grew up loving the outdoors you know seeing what's in their backyard stream and pond and netting salamanders or uh, tadpoles and you you locked it in as a a a job which is pretty cool Uh yeah and i grew up actually not doing any of that stuff really really (laughs) i I mean i did not you as that (laughs) what would would, uh, 12 year old you tell yourself now if you told went back and told yourself you're going to be catching tadpoles I mean, I would have thought, wow, that is so cool. Um, <laughs> but the, I grew up in like a pretty bland suburb, um, sure. pretty distant from anything outdoorsy and wildlifey. Um, so tr- that part of how I ended up here is still an anomaly to me. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, 
I mean, I would like find bugs in my yard, but like that was as like nature sure. as it got. <laughs> but it's pretty cool. I mean, like your journey, you kind of just, you know, said yes to life and, you know, it, it's kind of <laughs> rad that it puts you on this trajectory. And now look at you, you know, you're making articles, it's gone viral, you're on podcasts. Like, it's, yeah, it's pretty rad. <laughs> how, you know, sky is works. The, sky's the limit yeah. on this stuff. Um, so yeah. in your regular day, since, so what, keeping with the theme of coffee and conservation, mm -hmm. uh, do you drink coffee? Yes. Um, I drink a lot of coffee. <laughs> how how like, do you prefer to have your coffee? What is your, uh, what is your go-to for coffee? It's definitely quantity over quality. To be honest, there I just make a huge pot of drip coffee and like drink it during throughout the day. And when the go. coffee pot turns off, I just heat it up in the microwave, which is <laughs> really chaotic. Um, so and is this like, is there a difference between, is, is there a difference between field life and, uh, office life when your coffee preferences go one side or the other or is it just like this i got coffee is coffee is life must have you know drip coffee here we go i actually when i'm doing field work like every single day um i don't even drink coffee really um, yeah just because i really like things to be as simple as possible because field work can be so complicated and you yes. wake up early and you don't have that much time um, and lots of time you're traveling around. Like when I was doing my master's field work, field work um, we were usually camping. Um, and like cushy, like state park campground. So it wasn't that hard. But, um, <laughs> but still, well, I, I mean, mean, it's still. Yeah, thing, it's still camping. Know? And anything extra can be a daunting task when you've already mm -hmm. got like rigid outline things to do. Yeah. So I would just do the easiest thing. Um, and yeah, just eat a Pop-Tart in the morning, bagel for lunch. <laughs> no, it's funny because, like, so for, like, rangers uh, working in anti-poaching, rarely will you find uh, somebody who doesn't drink coffee, but coffee is simplified as well. And it is funny because there are some really good instant coffees now in different countries. So, like, South Africa has this amazing instant cappuccino that I used to get because, like, I just, it literally tasted like somebody made it, made it out of a machine. Uh, nice. But, like, it is also something where it becomes daunting. You're like, it has to be quick. It has to be simple. You can't add uh -huh. too much to the day. And it's funny, though, for, for you, uh, the opposite of, like, field work, you're like, no coffee, too much, not enough time kind of thing. And anti-poaching, we're like, can't function without coffee, <laughs> going to die. Uh, so that's, yeah, I definitely that's cool. Feel I mean, like so with, uh, you know, I guess with coffee, uh, you know, it's a very normalized drink for everybody. Uh, but it's always fun to hear everybody's routine with coffee because depending on how your work balance and field life is going, the assumptions are blown out of the water. Like uh, Xander said he eats, he does the uh, the butter, what is it called? The bullet coffee or something like that? Yeah, he puts like a stick of butter, not a stick of butter, but he puts butter in his coffee. Yeah, and I was like, what? And so like that floored me and then like uh <laughs> i've never heard of that <laughs> he's wild right he's from south africa so maybe it's like a south african thing i mean i have heard of it here but i also just haven't heard it in so long i, I was like what uh but then you have like um <laughs> you've got like comfort versus like uh so the qu quantity over quality uh like basically that aspect you know there's always that too um with uh with everything in conservation, we like to loop back like coffee choices, how 
just like these hellbenders are in your backyard, coffee, which is a, a, a everyday thing for folks, that it can be one of your first uh, gateways into making appropriate conservation changes. Um, so, you know, with agriculture and you got monocropping and polycropping, do you guys in the river systems see things caused by agriculture that are harming hellbenders like the nitrogen runoff or uh, dairy farms or anything like that? Uh, because I would imagine they, these guys could probably be the equivalents of the canary in a coal mine. They can be indicator species. And if things are not balanced, like, for example, if, if, if you buy uh, jade-grown coffee or organic coffee and there's, you know, checks and balances in order, that's going to have a less detrimental effect to, like, a watershed versus, like, an industrial chemical factory on the edge of a stream that's just going straight in. Um, so, I mean, do you see things like that in the hellbender world? Yes, um, absolutely. So um, in general, freshwater systems are pretty much the most imperiled globally. Um, and amphibians are pretty high up there. They're, you know, extremely sensitive to the environment. They pretty much like are permeable to the environment. Um, so any changes in the water is directly felt by, you know, hellbenders and salamanders in general. Um, but yeah, definitely. Um sedimentation seems mm. to be probably the biggest thing that I've experienced. And I can only really speak to the Southern Appalachian region of Hell, sure. Hellbenders range. Um, although I know there's declines in, you know, other places, I don't know the exact um, details of all of that. Um, but in my systems, I, it's definitely sedimentation where um, it comes from two places. Either you remove the riparian forest buffer um, so all the vegetation and trees kind of along a stream, um, that like soaks in everything that would be coming out of the environment and stops it from entering the stream and stabilizes the banks. So they're not like eroding into the water. Um, so when you remove that, basically the stream is going to keep cutting out, cutting away into the bank and all that sediment is going to be coming into the stream and filling in all the spaces, um, between rocks and pretty much just like throwing like a big blanket of badness yeah, like <laughs> onto, sure, a whole bunch of problems. Onto, the, onto the substrate. Um, and then also, um, I mean, with urbanization in general, you increase impervious surfaces. So like parking lots, streets, uh -huh. all that is basically water that would normally be like leaching into the soil when it falls down as rain is just like, you know, running off and accumulating all the nastiness that's on roads and everything. And just like uh -huh. pulling that into streams as well. Um, so, yeah, that's um, kind of the big thing that I was seeing. There was actually one stream um, in particular that um, even like, I think it was like 2014, um, there was like larval hellbenders detected there. And so my first field season, it was supposed to be like the best stream um, that we were looking at. And we did not find a single animal. Oh, um, and I, you know, did a little snorkeling upstream of the area and it was just all like undercut banks like eroding it, like just really, really nasty, sandy sure. rivers where they shouldn't be sandy because they're high elevation mountain rivers. Um, and yeah, it's, it can happen really fast. I mean, that stream, I feel like was the one that was telling the state of North Carolina, like, Hey, there's a problem here. Yeah, <laughs> it was their wake up call. So like, if I was like, Oprah, I, I, let's say for hypothetically, I'm Oprah rich. And I was like, you know what, Lauren, 
I like you. You're cool. Here's a hundred million dollars. Like what would be the first thing that you would do to maybe help with the hellbender like species or maybe conservation or something like that? Cause it seems like everything's connected, you know, like in regards to, you know, trees and the river and things like that. What would you do if I had just threw Bill Gates money? Um, definitely protecting land. I think sure. is nice. the most important thing. Um, yeah, like you, you just mentioned, um, everything's connected. Streams exist in a hierarchy. So um, you have to protect the upstream in order to protect the downstream. Um, so doing that and um, maybe also replanting um, riparian buffers um, so that that, um, that barrier to the outside world kind of exists a little better. Um, and then in terms of hellbenders specifically, um, there are two things that people are trying to do to like augment populations, which is um, captive breeding. There's a lot of captive breeding yes. going on. And how does one become involved in that? Like, how do they support that? Because you really um, on that. I know that. Oh my <laughs> gosh. I, I mean, if it was physically possible, I would literally have trout hellbender tanks in my backyard. And <laughs> this I is what we do in the podcast. You just want an end to get hellbender salamanders. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, 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 so I, I get so excited about that because uh, years ago, if, if you know, like poison arrow frogs, there were mm-hmm. a, a large group of folks who saw a really detrimental trend with imports. And a lot of us said, you know, why don't we just try to do captive breeding so we can collapse the import market? And it's, and we did succeed. So now you like, so Lucamellas, Azurias, uh, Aratus, uh, terribilis, these species that were like coming in in flocks from import. Now you, if, if you're, if not, I'm not advocating for buying these either. I'm just, what I'm saying is, is, uh, essentially the respectable captive breeding collapse, the detrimental import and trafficking market, um, which can't always be the case and it doesn't always work. But in the hellbender situation, I was curious about it because it reminds me of like, uh, endangered trout species and salmon species and one population pocket might be in trouble so you could actually relocate you know the genetic value of that population into a stable uh, captive breeding population to come back to it after it's been restabilized for riparian and water quality uh, so that you don't just lose an entire pocket of historical genetics you know like th- these salamanders have been here for x amount of thousand years and we can't stop some of these issues right now. What's the other plan? You know, like literally taking them out of the water. So, um, yeah, it's like an insurance policy against extinction, basically. Yeah. A um, bank account. <laughs> yeah. So definitely. Um, so off the top of my head, I know the St. Louis zoo, um, Purdue and let me see what else. Um, there's a few other, other zoos, the Memphis zoo, um, that are captive breeding. Um, um, the wild in Ohio also does a lot of captive breeding. Um, cool and yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's a cool place. Um, actually I have a lot of rhinos there. Yeah, um, you do. yeah <laughs> one of, uh, it's actually top three, top four, I'd say within the top four of rhino locations, the wilds for sure. Yeah. We had, we had a little project that we did up there. Um, that's still going on to, um, kind of look at tag retention in larval hellbenders but that's like a whole other tangent oh um, we're coming back <laughs> that I won't that. get into like tangents, um, tangents are good. <laughs> um but yeah captive breeding um is definitely a thing you could either um you know have just like have adults in the wild that you continuously breed or you could also collect eggs from mm-hmm. wild nests and head start them 
um, to ensure that those eggs um, become larvae and that those larvae actually survive to adulthood because there is um, a recruitment problem that we're seeing. Like we're seeing a lot of populations that have a lot of adults, but not um, all age classes, not the younger, the larvae and the younger juveniles. Sure, no teenagers. Um, yeah, which means that either the adults are not breeding successfully or um, those eggs are not surviving um, to adulthood. Wow. So, um, yeah, there are things you can do with that. You can also do translocation. Um, so um, my friend Brad Nissen at Tennessee State actually just did a project on this too, um, where you can take animals from healthy populations and um, translocate them either above dams, which are barriers to movement. Um, so areas above dams have been um, excluded from help for hellbenders. Um, or you can move them to places where um, maybe other factors caused declines, you know, decades ago sure. um, and kind of restart the population there. Um, and that seems to work okay in some situations. Um, so, yeah. There's, no. Oh, sorry. Keep continuing. Oh, that's it. <laughs> oh, okay. I, I was going to ask. So with the relocation and things like that, do you tag the salamanders? Like, do you, because I know in Yosemite, right, they, like, they tag the bears, but, the, but, but, but they don't name the bears, which I thought was interesting. Do you yeah, name the salamanders? Got a, a yeah, color like, and a tag. It's code. a color and a tag. And I got really upset at the ranger. I was like, what, what, about, what about, there's the, there's the bear Bert, you know, or Bert the bear or, you know, Eugene, nothing. They were just like, this is red, <laughs> blue, you know? So you were, you were, uh, Robert, you were essentially like, you were Karen, but Kevin in that situation where you're, no, I wasn't, you were throwing just, it at the poor dude. And he was like, I, uh, we just keep it to tags, dude. Yeah. They were like, yeah, they were like, this is just, this is, I think there, cause there was a bear in our campground. It was, his name was like blue six. And we're like, that's a dumb name for a bear. You should call him like Heath. And they were like, no, that's <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, okay, cool. But like, do, do you, now do you, is there a way to like, cause you can't really chip the salamanders, can you, or, or tag them? You can, you can pit tag them. So it's like an internal tag, how like you would microchip a dog. Okay. Um, yeah. And people do like do radio telemetry on hellbenders. It has to be like oh, surgically what? implanted radio oh. tag though. That's um, crazy. How do you, that would be, so does the water interfere with how you can pick up that signal? No, actually, you can pick it up even under enormous boulders. Dude, technology wow. is so crazy. <laughs> wow. So I did not even know that. that's so cool. That right? is, that's a trip. Yeah. Um, and then with the little ones that are too small to uh, pit tag, you can do um, VIE tags, which is visual implant elastomer. It's basically like a neon color that you can see in black light. Um, oh, so we would put that kind of on the bottoms of their feet. And you get to do that? You get to go out with a black light and look for little baby salamander feet? Yeah, so we would catch a salamander and then check if it's marked. And we actually had this, like, black bin that we would take out with us as, like, a little, like, black light yeah. studio. Sure. Um, <laughs> with, like, a black curtain. And so there would be, like, it's funny, we'd be, like, in a parking lot of, like, a very popular waterfall or something like that <laughs> with like two people in wetsuits on the floor with their heads in a black bin yeah. and people would just be walking by like what on earth is yeah. going on oh, um, i would totally be the guy like there is some type of serious nature going yeah. on right here i've got to go through <laughs> yeah. How do you do that situation do you like men in black it do you like oh we work for this government agency don't worry about it or do you like hey guys this is what we're doing come over and check it out um, we'd usually do the latter. Um, okay. if we had a hellbender with us, we'd, you know, show people, um, sometimes it would get a little out of hand. Like sometimes there would be a group of like 15 children that would just oh, like sure. surround us as I'm Bombard like trying you. to like inject a pit tag in a hellbender. <laughs> <And> I'm like, <laughs> kind of a serious subject guys. Maybe stop poking me, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, could see, general, I, I could see that. Like if you didn't handle that appropriately, some would be like, they're planting 5G salamanders in the water. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, some people thought we were looking for treasure. Oh, <laughs> did you find anything? People. Yeah, did you find anything while you were scuba, uh, snorkeling down there? Like anything cool? Um, nothing cool. Okay. <laughs> um, oh, bummer. Little, little interesting things. I have actually a lucky stream spoon that I found in the river one day Heck while I was yeah. snorkeling on a day that I forgot my spoon for lunch. So. Wow. <laughs> the river gods blessed you with a spoon yeah. that day. Uh, <laughs> you know, random, I f- was actually checking out tide pools the other day here here at home in San Diego and we found a seven-year-old GoPro uh-huh. that washed ashore and the reason I know it's seven years old was because it looked destroyed in the housing I took it home cleaned it out dried it off and plugged the sim card in and the date stamp on the sim card was March I mean like literally almost to the day like Really, it, it was March first, two thousand fourteen, and I was like, Did you "What?" See cool. Were people and still I using it on six? I think it was, but like that was, I was like, "Oh, this thing's totally broken, busted. There's no way it's gonna work." Yeah, that was a trip. That, that's so cool. Some, some, that's some, like an artifact. Yeah, yeah. My my inner pirate self was ah, hidden treasure, found it. <laughs> yeah, dude. Well, when I used to go snorkeling, right? Because I don't like killing things. My buddy would go spearfishing, and I'd be like, oh, "Okay," and I'd purposely like miss the fish. Because I don't want to kill anything, right? So, like, I would be like, oh, I'm bored. So, I'm going to go, like, look for stuff. And you could just crazy the stuff that's in the ocean. Like, I walked out with sandals, you know, uh, uh, golf balls, like, clothing. Like, it's yeah. wild what they have in there. But yeah. it's, it's interesting that you, that's, that you see that's, that, too. That's kind of sad, too. I mean, like, uh, here's another active way people could actually help right off the bat with this sparking the uh, the aha People who are going out for trail cleanups and water cleanups, pick up your trash, dude. Just take it home. And if you can, fill up a bag of trash and take it out of the water. Because unfortunately, there you can find humans impact too many places mm-hmm. now. And it sucks. Yeah, actually. Um, so one of my one of my technicians um, was also interning for the um, Pisca Ranger District um, as a river ranger. Um, and so Fun. their job was to... Um, basically do a lot of river cleanup and outreach and they would pick up 60 pounds of trash a day. Whoa. Um, 60 pounds. Is that each total? Um, probably total. I don't remember the exact numbers, but I remember being absolutely shocked at the things that she would tell me. Um, Mm -hmm. apparently the biggest piece of trash that they pick up literally out of the river is diapers, like dirty diapers, which is like right when you're snorkeling, like, Oh, I'm just in all this E. coli water. Um, they're actually worried about the E. coli levels in these beautiful mountain rivers because yeah. of diapers, which I feel like should not happen. Like that's just we can oh, do something about that. Dude, I, like, um, I'd be so pissed if I saw someone throw a diaper. I, oh my gosh, can you? Well, that's yeah. what, what what possesses mm-hmm. you to just be like, ah, yes, baby turds? Let me throw it in this pristine river. <laughs> yeah. Well, people like, always ask though, like, what's the what's the best way to get into conservation? It's like, yeah, just pick up your shit. You know? Yeah, just be a respectable human being and don't trash the earth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, picking up after yourselves. Um, I definitely would find a lot of like little plastic pieces all mm-hmm. over the place, um, like things that used to be part of something. Um, not microplastics yet, but yeah, we would. We always had little fanny packs. One of your questions was actually um, like, "What's your favorite tool?" I was going to say fanny pack. Um, oh yes, yeah. What, so so everybody's got a favorite tool and. Uh, field set so the fanny pack those what what is in the uh i'm assuming this is going to be your mary poppins science kick that you just like have all these fun gadgets in and what color is it um just like basic black walmart flip fanny packs all my whole crew had them um 
we would, one of the pockets would have all the um, laundry bags that we used to catch hellbenders, literally like lingerie laundry bags. Yeah, the, the, <laughs> because they, they, you can have water permeate through them, right? They're, yeah. they're like, like a really fine fishnet uh, style cloth bag. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then the other one would have like my camera and then the other pouch would be like to pick up trash. Um, so fishing line also, tons yeah. of fishing line. Uh-huh. Um, we once pulled a pretty long piece like out of a hellbender's butt. Really? Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, we would find it like tangled onto the trees all the time, which I get it. If you're like fly fishing and your thing catches on a tree, like you can't get it. Um, but yeah, the, all that stuff definitely gets into the river too. And I would imagine it's not great. Yeah. <laughs> over time. So I got a quick question. So one of the, when we were talking about ways you guys help with, you said translocation, you're talking about uh, getting above a dam. So there's a movement across the United States right now, which is taking out a lot of these dams uh, that are over 70 to 100 years old in a lot of cases. And so that they can rest, people can restore the natural sediment flow and nutrition, or sorry, nutrient um, dispersion across these rivers and streams and not screw up fisheries. Uh, have you watched Damnation? I have not, but okay. I should, because dams are currently kind of the bane <laughs> of my existence now that I work really? on a so, wanted, so. <laughs> I would, I would so? guess. Uh, it, it came out in 2014, and if it's, I believe it's on Netflix, or it's where I had watched it. You could probably find it on multiple things now, but it goes into depth about what we thought dams would do for human civilization, but also the pros and cons of it. And really this, the, like it kind of helps you understand, like it's actually better to not have them essentially, you know? Uh, yes. But it, it helps us understand like, why are we having fisheries fails mm-hmm. in so many streams? Why are we, I mean, there's actually, there's hundreds of problems. It's a pretty cool uh, documentary. I was curious if you've seen it and sure. I highly recommend it. So why is it, why is it a con, Lauren? Why, why is it so hard for you? Like what, what's, what does a dam do? Um, so dams are, they do a lot. <laughs> um, yeah. So. The damn dam. So, you know, obviously there's a lot of dams that we can't remove because human civilization has popped up below the dam and we sure. have to, we, there's no way that we can actually like bring back that floodplain. Um, but basically like a dam creates a reservoir of, which is, you know, a natural, like a lake on a river. That's like a huge migration. Well, first of all, it's a barrier to migration. Yeah. Um, that's kind of the biggest thing, especially with Salmonids. Um, and then with yeah. hellbenders, you're, you know, um, you're separating populations that maybe would have had some back and forth. Um, and so those populations above the dams um, are now, you know, on their own and they can't get rescued if they start to decline by other populations. Um, and then with Salmonids, um, a lot of them can breed and do breed. Um, spawn, I guess, is the right word for fish. I'm still learning how to fish. Okay, so um, <laughs> for those that don't know, too, <laughs> the, the, the Salmonids um, or, uh, family is anything that includes salmon and then also trout species. Uh, and, yes. Uh, so you, you have a whole freshwater ecology system that's being uh, inhibited that wouldn't have we would we wouldn't have so many problems with some of our favorite fish species in the u.s uh if, if it wasn't for dams sure yeah um 
Yeah, and so, you know, obviously barriers to migration, um, and then reservoirs are extremely unnatural in terms of temperature, in terms of flow. Um, mm. So it's like removing, um, even when there is like dam passageways for fish, like fish ladders, um, it creates a barrier because fish use flow as a cue um, and don't know how to navigate that. And then also um, the warm temperatures in reservoirs, there's a lot of like bass and pike and like warm water species that are predators to a lot of cold water species. Um, and of, of, often that's like, there's lethal high temperatures that cold water species can't tolerate in those reservoirs. Um, and, and yeah, so also, that would be like, you see that in lakes that are dammed with trout species, you'll see a, a, a trout die off because they essentially go into shock and you'll see the shorelines littered with trout. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then also um, it prevents upstream inputs to downstream um, parts of the watershed. So for example, um, large woody debris that would normally accumulate in like the headwater forested areas um, is a really important habitat feature, especially for salmonids. Um, and so that's prevented from going into the downstream, like lower elevation reaches. Um, also sediment, it like traps all the sediment that would normally, normally be coming from upstream, which is usually coarser sediment, which is good, like cobble and boulder um, that gets trapped behind the dam. Um, so you just, you get this very stark difference between like upstream of a dam and downstream of a dam. Wow. Yeah, you get like the equivalent of like rainforest ecology to barren landscape, struggling desert stuff on the other side. Yeah, and really? it's interesting to see the the change and it it's this you know this is one of the reasons I got so excited about the Hellbender talk was there were so many elements we could talk about For everyday real. people's lives like how you know like did you you know damnation is there a dam in your backyard is it aging mm -hmm. or is it something that they can take down have you seen a petition for a dam you know simple things like that um uh, picking up your trash uh don't throw diapers in a river i would hope that would be a no duh but um <laughs> you know don't you know people pl also like it's not just all of this we're part of the same ecosystem so if you're damaging hellbender life you're damaging human life too so like if you're dumping chemicals into that water, somebody might be playing in it, drinking in it, or somebody might be using that to grow food with it. Or that might be part of your own water that comes into your reservoir. I mean, you know, think big picture on some of these things. It's it's crazy. Some people are like, oh, it's a disposable end endless river. And it's like, yeah, it doesn't take that much, you know, deep to cause you some problems once it's in the water. And it doesn't cause... You know, it doesn't take that much of a chemical if it's concentrated to cause a lot of people a lot of issues um, or species, different species in the water. Um, so. Yeah, and that's, I mean, truly, like, education is the biggest thing that will help any ecosystem, I feel. And, like, right. you know, I come from a background of, like, a culture that is disconnected from nature. So I understand that perspective. And so... I think it's really easy for people who are like really into like conservation and nature to like demonize people that like don't understand um, and kind of talk down about them. But it's, it's all about just education. And if you're never exposed to something, and if nobody ever tells you really about it, like point. how are you supposed to know? Yeah. Um, so like, I guess just educating people about their backyard ecology and knowing that like, if you, you know, go out to play in your creek behind the yard, like these rocks are individual habitat features. And um, whatever you manipulate, like, has larger scale impacts than whatever is right there. Um, and, like, the way that all these things connect, the way a watershed connects, like, whatever happens to one little creek affects everything downstream. 
Um, and yeah, I think educating people on that is really, I think important thing. That's, that's a, a really good point though. Yeah. That, like, cause, uh, commonly like, especially like, so again, this podcast is really aimed at getting more people to understand the behind the scenes of a post or a written paper or mm -hmm. a picture of conservation, you know, uh, that's an awesome way to say, it. you know, like education can go so far. It, I mean, you inspire one person and then that person becomes another inspiring point and it keeps moving and it goes down. Um, I mean, yeah. you start impacting more people. Uh, so I guess with all the stuff you have going with the Hellbender stuff, is there like a current project you're working on or is there something specific that you're trying to get to at this point with Hellbenders? Um, so the next kind of big thing that's being looked at is um, like larval ecology because there's, there's no recruitment. Um, and so that's kind of the thing that is getting everyone's attention right now is figuring out like what's going on with the younger life stages. Um, and actually... Um, so the lab that I did all my master's research out of, um, is, um, Dr. Kathy Jahowski's lab at Compton University. Um, and she's continuing this work, um, now that I have gone, um, actually I miss the help underworld so much. Um, but <laughs> that is, that is continuing. Awesome. Um, so you can check out, um, her website, freshwaterconservationecology.org, um, to find out more about that kind of stuff. Um, and then, um, yeah, more work on captive breeding. I think the next step is really like putting all of what putting all of this monitoring and research into action. Uh -huh. Um, so my current PhD project is, um, related to structured decision-making and natural resource decisions, Ooh. um, which is kind of like a very specific like model on how to like move from monitoring and parameter estimates and demographic estimates into action. Yeah. Um, and what is the best action that creates the most good and the least bad? Um, and you can make decisions with a lot of uncertainty about different things. Um, but I think applying like decision-making to the help under world <laughs> is um, sure. something that would be really beneficial um, and something that I hope to see in the next few years. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And I mean, yeah, more funding, more research. Sure. Um, Hellbenders, you know, they're, they're like the charismatic megafauna of like, you know, well, salamanders, I guess. Um, so, I mean, they get more funding than other salamanders, but it's still not as much as you would get for like, you know, game uh -huh. species or, you know, a lot of really fun birds. So <laughs> people really is love this, study. this is grant so, funding, right? This is grant funding written by schools and, uh, professors and the PhDs and the students. Is that, that, yeah. what, who do you write the grants to? Like, how does, how, who's the grant funder primarily for some of these? Um, so different agencies, um, can provide grants. So all my funding came from the North Carolina Wildlife Resources Commission. Uh -huh. Um, and so at different states have different amounts of money. Um, North Carolina has a really big wildlife agency, so they were able to do a lot, which is amazing. That's um, awesome. and you know, forest service usually has grants to do stuff like this at anybody at any stage in their, um, graduate career can apply for a national science foundation grant. Cool. Um, outstanding, which will give you a lot of money to do pretty much anything you want as long as you justify it. Um, although that's usually more for like basic science kind of questions. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, it's kind of, it's hard to figure out this part, like the getting money part 
Um, truly, that scares me the most out of like the academic life. Yeah, I've been there. Is, oh yeah, um, yeah we know something getting about grants. That. Now, um, how, oh sorry. Yeah, um, that's that's it. <laughs> okay, so how, like okay, so how has the pandemic affected your your getting your PhD? Has it thrown like any curveballs your way? Because it seems like your PhD is a lot more outside and social, like little smaller bubbles. Has there been like any curveballs in your way? Um, so my PhD actually has no field work, which oh, really? is kind of sad for me. Yeah, I'm, it's all like modeling. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did that for a reason, even though field work is what I love. Um, I feel like I need to learn <laughs> this like really hard modeling stuff sure. in order to do what I need to do, what I want to do um, later on after my PhD. Um, so yeah, I, um, so I'm at Oregon State um, and then all the data we get is from the California Central Valley. Um, so I specifically am looking at like the San Joaquin watershed. Sure. Um, right on. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so I just sit at my computer okay. all day, every day. Um, and I have a home office. So the pandemic really hasn't affected, um, anything really for me besides okay. just general life things, the sure. way that it's affected everyone, sure. you know, working from home kind of sucks sometimes, okay. but yeah. All right. Well, let me ask you this one. This is kind of a, a bigger question, but through the course of our talking, you've mentioned probably about, I would say, four to five of your colleagues have been female. Is there a larger female like demographic in, in your type of work? Or is it just, is that like, what would you say to somebody who, like maybe a, a younger female who's interested in getting into, you know, conservation or biology and such? I'm so glad you asked that, Robert. That like, yeah. that was on my mind. Like, how would you, how would you help inspire the next generation mm-hmm. of women in science and STEM? I mean, yeah. It's pretty cool because you're working on your PhD and I mean, you are out there doing it for your master's too. I mean, there's, I'm sure there are going to be uh, female listeners on this podcast going like, oh, this is something I would totally love to do. For sure. What, what road do you recommend? And, and, and then also Robert's question. <laughs> I don't want to take away from Robert's question. I just got so excited with I that. Just was, I just thought it was really interesting because I think out of the four or five people you mentioned, uh, I, I didn't catch the pronouns for one person, but they, they've pr- primarily been all female. Yeah, um, and I think having um, quality female mentors in my journey has been oh. such a big deal for me. Um, That's a good point. Like my first ever wildlife job, um, I was working for a couple female grad students. Um, and then my, when I started working for Florida Fish and Wildlife, um, I was mentored by an amazing woman. Um, do you want to give them and, a shout out? Uh, yeah. Anna Farmer from Florida Fish and Wildlife. Um, she's not there anymore. I think she's now doing her PhD. Um, another PhD. Autism. Cool. Another um, nice. Yeah. Um, and then, um, yeah. And then, you know, my master's advisor, um, Kathy Jahowski was such a big influence on my way of thinking. Um, about being a woman in science. So, you know, now, now I have two male advisors um, and it is kind of a shift. <laughs> sure. um, just, I've never really worked with, I've truly never worked with men. Um, so I'm kind of having to like navigate that um, for the first time in my life, which is weird. But having strong female mentors early on in life makes you see what is possible and gives you something to like work towards. Like, I want to be like you. Like I see myself in you. I want to be like you. For How sure. do I be like you? That's, that's a really good point. Yeah, that's a really yeah. cool point. Um, all right. So we've we've been talking the 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 fun, the science, the um, the ecology, environmental stuff. Uh, I've got a couple speed questions. 
Sure. That are going to be fun. So I guess these could relate to the field or field work um, or even the new PhD uh, in-house life uh, working behind the computer because uh, there's never enough time in a day, which we always find in this realm. But uh, okay, so what I'm, I'm going to change these. Usually we ask folks like abroad, you know, like because we're, we're, we're talking on different things. But uh, in the field, what is your favorite snack or dish you would take? Hmm. Um, I love a good bowl of strawberries. Like Ooh. a Tupperware of strawberries. That's for some reason the first thing that came to mind. Um, but also bagels. Bagels. Um, just what kind of traveling bagel? around? Um, like an everything bagel. Nice. Okay, cool. Swerve. Yeah. Uh, okay. What's your favorite drink to take out for your long days or your most refreshing beverage of your work normal work day? Um, I think just water. I truly don't drink anything. That isn't water unless it's alcohol. Like okay. unless it's beer. Hey, the here's, here's so. to that. I mean, that's pretty awesome. Um, what has been your favorite camp that you stayed at while doing your field work? Like national park, community park, anything like that. Your favorite camp setup? I like that one. Um, mm-hmm. There's a, a park in North Carolina called Carolina Hemlocks uh, State Park or Recreation Area, something like that. Carolina Hemlocks. Um, it's right on the raging and beautiful South Till River. Um, and you're camping in like a grove of hemlocks, which is kind oh, of rare cool. for the Southern Appalachians. Um, so yeah, that's my favorite place that I've ever stayed for field work. Okay. And a hemlock being what though? That's a tree? Yes. Okay. It's, it's, oh, I can cool. see, I can like visualize this. It has to be stunning. I'm going to Google it. <laughs> um, okay. So your funniest moment uh, working in the field. Um, funniest moment. Oh my God. I think I know what I want to say, but my previous technicians are going to hate that I said this. Um, (laughs) (laughs) All the more reason. (laughs) So we were staying at this Airbnb this one night, which was kind of a storage unit. It was very strange. Oh, Um, no. (laughs) (laughs) um, And the whole day we were talking about this concept. We spend a lot of time together and we just talk about really weird things um about how you can't break an egg if you like squeeze it from like the, the top, top and bottom aiming. yeah that's a thing on tiktok right now <laughs> um and so we were talking about that all day and so finally we get back to this airbnb and there's nothing to do and we have some eggs <laughs> we're like all competing to see who can squish the egg <laughs> and um and one of my technicians cheated so he was able to squish the egg but then mm-hmm. like the consequence for not being able to squish the egg was that you had to like smash it against your face (laughs) (laughs) and so yeah we couldn't squish the egg so we're like yes we have to do that and we really nobody was making us do that (laughs) oh that's that's pretty good those own rules you're like what's the thing (laughs) yeah you end up when you're just like with three or four people every single day constantly like 24 7 you just get into some weird places oh yeah i trust me robert robert and i have had our, our share of funny uh where we just silently are sitting there we both look at each other like is this is this actually happening and then okay. laugh about it and then go through it and then come back later and be like that was pretty strange but that's those are the parts those are the memories that like you kind of cherish the most you know like Oh, for like, sure. Uh, yeah, you know, like if so, so, like if you were like somebody was like, "Hey, Lauren, what were you doing?" Like at that time, but like I was just smashing eggs in my face, it's no big deal. But like, <laughs> yeah, it's totally well, normal. I didn't do it. But I... You didn't do it? No, but I watched as my technician did it. 
we got we got to try right now. <laughs> okay, so um, next question is: After a long day of field work or work in general, what is your favorite alcohol beverage that you kind of wind down with? Um, I'm a beer person. Nice. So IPAs or what? What were you going with? Yeah, IPAs. <laughs> nice, nice. Um, okay, and then. Last one is it doesn't have to be a speed question in the sense of your response. What was your expectation versus reality of getting into Hellbender Science? That's a good question. Uh, um, so I think this applies to science in general, um, more so than Hellbender specifically. But like things sound really good on paper and then don't work. Um, yeah. And I yeah. think that's something that every scientist needs to go through and realize that it's okay. Um, and sometimes it's not because you failed. It's just like the thing didn't work and that's part of the science. Um, so we were putting out these hellbender shelters. It's like an artificial concrete thing um, that's supposed to mimic like a breeding boulder. That's um, so cool. And in other places, they work really, really well. In Virginia and Missouri, they work really well. They get a ton of hellbenders coming in, breeding in them, and staying in them pretty much forever. Um, they did not work for us at all. Oh, no. Um, we had very minimal, um, like, um, shelter occupancy. We had no nests. Um, but it was truly half my project. And I spent my entire first year of my master's doing concrete work, feeling like a construction worker. Oh, um, and each of these things weighed, like, 100 pounds. And it was so, so, so much work. Wow. Um, and... It's kind of demoralizing to do all that, and then it doesn't work. But also, there's like a story behind that. Like when yeah. something doesn't work, what is what is the reason that it didn't, and what can other people in the future learn from that? Right. Um, so, unfortunately, in science, things that don't work don't really get published. <laughs> um, which yeah, that's actually that's a good point right there. Like, so how do you share that roadblock to your success with yeah. others in your field? Yeah, so we're working on that manuscript right now, trying to spin it in a way um, that makes it, you know, palatable to like journals that um, they want to, you know, publish hard hitting science because that make, you know, increases their impact factor as a journal. But it's important for people to to learn from past mistakes. Like that's part of the iterative oh, sure. process of science. Um, and so, yeah, to just know like if something didn't work, that's part of it. And that doesn't mean that's not bad. That just sure. means that we learned from that. Um, and you know, how, how can we move on from this? Dude, I that's would definitely read a book. That's like failure, like scientific failure kind of things. Like that'd be really, really <laughs> interesting. that would be a yeah, fun a book. Yeah. I mean, I think part of that too is, uh, it is also learning that failure isn't the dead end. It isn't the uh -huh. end of your, your road, right? Like a lot of people are so fear, are so, they're so afraid of failure there's a fear of failure in our society especially in these higher realms of science and uh conservation projects because you feel like so much is resting on it but like you said that's how we grow that's how we learn that's how we move on that's how we evolve as a society and a culture so at some point it's really important to be comfortable enough talking about the failures so that you can prevent other people from trying to reinvent the wheel uh, and I mean, at the end of the day, when you listen to somebody else share their fails, you actually connect with them more and understand like, Hey, you know, they're willing to just like, let's figure this out. Let's talk sure. it out, figure out the next step versus someone's like, I never fail. And you're like, okay, well, come on now. 
like Sick, you're a robot, you know? Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. This we know, and and nature is classically always throwing curveballs. I mean, always throwing a curveball at you. So I think that's 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 pretty cool. Um, yeah, I try yeah. to be very open about my failures. <laughs> um, I mean, you got to. Yeah, yeah, I feel like science needs to be like more vulnerable as a as a field in general. Yeah, that's interesting. I, uh, he, we so I I'm not a, a research scientist or anything to your degree at all. I work in a you know an interesting realm of counter poaching, counter wildlife trafficking, community based conservation on the regular. But uh, we've had some really comical fails that were that you know they didn't cause injury. But I mean simple misunderstandings that result in cultural fails uh, mm-hmm. that are like you know. Hey, you know, we're going to try to reduce uh, <laughs> poaching in this community. We're going to give everybody a goat and we're going to start a, a livestock program. And then everybody in that community sacrifices their goat the next day and throws a giant weekend party and everything's gone. And you're like, well, that didn't work. And yeah. uh, not fully understanding the feast and famine mentality of certain cultures or the share everything factor. Uh, and you're like, okay, back to square one. That sucked. Like, Yeah, but you learn something from it. True. Yeah. And so you're not going to do the same thing in the future. Yeah, right? So Um, is the hellbender your favorite animal? Or do you have like, are you like, you know what? I really vibe with dolphins. Um, I would say hellbenders have just become my favorite animal. Okay, cool. Um, I truly have so much like hellbender like things, like, you know, pictures and stickers and like (laughs) t-shirts that just like get thrown at me. Well, you have Um, a hellbender t-shirt? Yeah, I was just going to ask, where does one get a hellbender shirt? Yeah, (laughs) that'd be so Um, rad. I can email you guys some links afterwards. Yeah, <laughs> yes, please do. I want a shirt. I have this awesome glittery one that says "Raise a little hell." Hell yeah, <laughs> dude! I love that. I want that yeah. to be like on a coffee mug. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's cool. So, Dang. in in every podcast, we like to say um, as well that um, your dollar is your vote. Right? You can vote in a direction. Um. What are some things that people could do in their daily life to that you could think of that might help better watershed environments and hellbender environments? You know, are there certain soap companies? Are there certain uh, institutions that they can support? Are there certain backgrounds? You know, like something that comes to mind is like, I would assume if you're applying to different agencies, getting something like your fishing license and being an appropriate, appropriately, uh, what do they call it? Um, an, eth- an ethical sportsman in the fishing realm, uh, you know, picking up your leftover tackle and, you know, that kind of stuff. Are there things like that that people could make impacts by choosing the right products or choosing the right ways to go about something like force yeah. passes? I think I have two, two answers to that. One is definitely like, you know, hunting and fishing licenses. I know that those are on the decline, like, you know, generally because culturally people don't do those things as much anymore. Um, but that's such a big way that um, state wildlife agencies get funding. Um, and truly most of the on the ground conservation and, you know, monitoring and research that I have experienced has been through state wildlife agencies. Like U.S. Fish and Wildlife does a lot of the like, you know, um, legal up. stuff yeah. at the top. Um, they don't do a lot of the on the ground things. Um, and then you know, obviously there's always like local NGOs that do local restoration. Um, but 
but I think state wildlife agencies have a lot of power. So um, yeah, increasing funding for those. Um, and then also I would say to private landowners, um, there's a lot of re like farm bill money to restore streams on your land. Um, so I know um, there's a branch of Defenders of Wildlife in the Southern Appalachians that's doing this specifically for hellbenders. It's the, um, I think I'm saying it right, Southeast Hellbender Conservation Initiative. Um, Ooh, rad. And they are helping farmers restore streams. How cool. And helping them to navigate getting farm bill money um, to restore their streams because that's financially better for them. Um, and, you know, helping them figure out how to do that. Um, it's really complicated to figure out how to get money from the government for these things. So there's groups that will help you do that if you have private land. That is really cool. That I could see like that. I mean, geez, if I, if I got wind of that and also just outside of getting the funding, the task itself would probably be daunting to somebody who's already running a very busy life on a property, right? Like farming is not a nine to five job or, you know, even livestock, whatever it may be. But if you're a private landowner and you managing your own land can be daunting if it's big and it's got, you know, mixed habitat in it. Um, I guess that's a perfect call to action, actually, that that's a two for one. Uh, we usually highlight a call, a call to action too. Um, so I guess the next would be, uh, as somebody who's spent time out in the, well, we're going to refer to it as hellbender country, uh, just for fun. Uh, <laughs> what would you say for five travel and camping tips when you're, when, again, this can be a, being a good camping steward, or this could be just how to deal with the elements or, you know, what are five tips you'd give somebody who's going to go camping in these areas? Um, so my main thing would be to, when you're, you know, hanging out in rivers is to don't move everything around, sure. um, which okay. is kind of, um, the subject of that article was don't move the rocks. Um, and that's, you know, a huge thing. You see a lot of like rock stacks and, you know, shoots to slide down and dams to like, you know, let oh, soak in. rock stacks. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Um, and I've seen rock stacks with, you know, huge boulders that were taken out of the river that that boulder would not have moved unless it was like a hundred year flood. Um, and somebody just picked it up and that thing has probably been there for decades. Um, so things like that, you know, just be aware. Every rock is a habitat feature. It, is in that place for ecological reason. Um, and yeah, um, as far as being a camping steward, um, clean up after yourself. <laughs> yeah, pack it in, pack it out, as, right? as, Yeah, as we talked about before. Um, tips for, you know, enjoying these environments. I would suggest if you've never gone river snorkeling, um, it is truly magical. Really? Um, yeah, Robert, what did I just talk about before the podcast? <laughs> he was just talking about snorkeling in a river. And I was like, a river? He goes, yeah. We were also talking about, because we're going to Costa Rica, and there's a bunch of like rivers, I guess, down there. Um, so we're going to go snorkel on those things. But there's a pros side, because I'm sure, I'm sure, I don't know if it's in North Carolina, but is there snapping turtles in North Carolina? Like, do you have to come across um, those guys? Snapping turtles are in like a lot of like bigger, like blackwater rivers. Oh, okay. So maybe on like the main stem French broad in okay. North Carolina. Because I was very, um, very nervous when you were telling these stories. I was like, please don't let there be a snapping turtle. No, I actually <laughs> never saw a single turtle in two years of river snorkeling. Interesting. Um, yeah, but uh, it's cold. So you probably would, you know, benefit from a wetsuit. Um, okay. <laughs> but yeah, um, it's like such a beautiful environment when you're in like a clear mountain river 
Um, to be among all of these fish that you like truly never knew existed. There's like this specific time in like April or May where um, river chubs make their nests and they're stone rollers. So they make these big mounds of pebbles that they lay their eggs in. And then a bunch of other kinds of little stream fish use them. And it becomes this like pulsating aquarium, rainbow aquarium of fish, like in all these little patches along the river. And it's truly just a stunning thing to look at. Um, there's actually, um, there's a documentary called Hidden Rivers through Freshwaters Illustrated. Um, Ooh, that I'm putting that one down. Shows, Hidden Rivers? Oh, yeah. Um, I think you used to have to pay for it. I don't know if you still do. Um, Freshwaters Illustrated, they also do a lot of like photography and stuff cool. related to streams. Um, and you can see kind of like what all of this looks like, but um, it definitely gets you hooked once you see it. I was going to say, you're describing it like beautifully. Like it makes me really like, like if you ever need anybody to come with you and like carry your shit, like I think Mike and I would absolutely <laughs> volunteer. Oh yeah. That's it, it. It's, I love that you mentioned like snorkeling and streams and rivers. I mean, granted folks, please be safe. Uh, not every, <laughs> not every environment's going to be super safe to do this, but uh, right. if you can There's do it guides. safely, I also highly recommend that. I love to take, uh, my snorkel gear up into Yosemite and into Sequoia and the underwater world up there is so cool. I mean, you have these like pristine clear streams with trout species and deadfall and like from these big trees in the water. And it's unreal. It looks like it's just unreal. It's so cool. So what would be a danger though of, of river snorkeling? Um, rapids. Speed, yeah, high speed currents. Probably. Oh, rapid. Um, Ra- wait, rapids. Rapids. Yeah. Oh, I thought you, like, I thought it was like 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 rabies, like rabbits. <laughs> like, Y'all, this is dangerous. Well, high, sp- yeah, high speed just... rivers could sweep you up, and you okay. might also find yourself on the edge of a waterfall if you're not paying attention. Always know, oh, okay. always map where you're gonna be doing this, and always make sure you can have an out. Uh, sure. And do it in low flow conditions, not like right after like a huge rain event where oh, okay. the water's rushing, you know? Gotcha. Um, no emperor's new groove situation. <laughs> yeah. Actually, he fell off a waterfall. It's all right. It's fine. Yeah. But there are guides um, to river snorkeling. Um, I know since I've just moved to Oregon recently, I found cool. an Oregon River Snorkelers Facebook group. Um, so can't wait to go do that this summer. Heck the rivers yeah. are so pretty. Um so yeah, you can definitely find other people that like know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, in North Carolina, where I was working, there was a few guide companies. So yeah, that's, <laughs> that's awesome. rad. So are you uh, are you like looking forward to anything like in the future? Like I noticed that you said that the hellbender salamanders, like closest relatives, are in Japan and China. Or do you plan? Do you see yourself going that way? Oh, I would absolutely love to. It's like a dream to just hold a giant salamander that's so big that I could hug it and just like covers me in slime. That's <laughs> Really the dream. <laughs> that's awesome yeah that is really cool it's it, when when i so like i i love all these giant sal- salamanders i get so excited to see like any any documentary work about any of them but it's funny because when you see those ones you're just like that thing is literally just it is a it is a giant critter it's just chilling in this river and in, in, in japan some of the things you see it's like an old Japanese castle with a tiny, tiny little stream or brook, and there's this three foot long salamander just, just coasting through. And you're like, what? Yeah. Really? And what's interesting about those is that they exist in really small, like headwater streams. 
So like the length of their body is like the width of the stream. Really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's it's insane. such a trip. I encourage anyone listening to this to look them up. Oh yeah. yeah. Uh, so what do you miss most right now about the field? Uh, it, it to, to pair it with Robert's question. Um, I think I miss like touching animals. <laughs> I can totally um, understand that's that. That's kind of one of those things that gets everybody into wildlife biology is mm-hmm. like holding wild animals. Like that is so cool. Um, and so, yeah, I'm trying to get into like fly fishing so I can okay. oh, cool. do that with trout, but <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. definitely, um, I miss that. I miss just reasons to go outside. You know, it's really easy to, I mean, the weather's been gross here in Oregon, so I guess not really, but um, yeah, just having a reason to like being forced to go outside because sometimes you're just like, you wake up and you're tired and you like, don't want to go on a hike and drive two hours and whatever. Um, But when it's your job, you're like, you just got to do it. And it always makes you happier. So Yeah. yeah, that's true. Like motivators to get you outside, especially like in the current, uh, pandemic realm like i think we've all been forced inside more than we normally would be on average so uh those independent motivators are like i gotta go outside to go fishing oh i've got to get up at the crack of dawn to go hit this right spot so i can have a chance you know yeah like those that's that's a pretty good point um so uh, have you brought your parents or your siblings out to go catch hellbenders no (laughs) um my they are not outdoorsy oh (laughs) Um, See, I have caught a, like salamanders with them. Um, yeah. They they will not touch them. I'd be like I'd be so in the stream with everybody catching these. I would be snorkeling and <laughs> be like yeah. dirty all day, loving it. And then I'd be trying to tell Robert he has to like at least at least like hold it for a second so he could understand it. Yeah, he'd make me do that. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone should, like, if you get the chance to hold a hellbender, it's truly, like, really? the slimiest, softest, wrinkliest thing. Oh, it's the way you're describing it makes me want to do it, but I'm scared. Because I would get the one that had, like, an anger issue and then, like, bite me. So, I've actually only bit, been bitten by a hellbender once, and it was my last day ever doing hellbender fieldwork. Really? Did you it, know, yeah, you and it was... Teeth? What, what do hellbenders eat? Um, they slurp up crayfish, just suck them down whole like a vacuum. Shut up. The little things. Those are huge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. When you catch them, you can like feel their stomach and feel like a hard crayfish inside. Whoa. <laughs> oh, that's trippy. Oh, that's goodness. really cool. I did not know that. Dude. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Okay, I want to go. <laughs> that sounds so cool. That's yeah, if you rad. guys are ever in, um, in the, you know, Western North Carolina, upstate South Carolina area. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, wanted, I don't know if you guys don't need like filming or stuff, um, but, you know, um, you can contact my previous advisor. I'm sure she has some kind of cool hellbender project going on. Heck yeah. Um, oh, that you man, can I'm so for. game for that. <laughs> That's super cool. Dang. So, like, where can people learn more about, like, hellbenders and the research you do and things like that? Um, so, generally, helpthehellbender.com org one of those two um is a really great resource um a lot of there's a lot of like outreach and stuff that comes out of the um midwestern states that work on Mm -hmm. hellbenders um and yeah um i think pisca national forest is a lot of outreach um north carolina wildlife research 
resource commission does a lot of outreach. And uh-huh. if you, you know, have any sightings, they want you to report it. Um, yeah. Um, there's actually, there's a film, a short film, like nine minutes long called the last dragons. It's called, um, what is it called? The last dragons. That's I can't believe I almost didn't mention name. this. Um, that everyone should watch if you have literally nine minutes to spare. It's absolutely beautiful. Is um, it on Vimeo? Like, in, where, where would you find that one? It's on Vimeo. Um, okay. But I think if you, like, Google it, you can find it. Um, That's it's, so cool. Yeah, it's um, based in Pisgah National Forest, uh-huh. I believe. Um, but, yeah, it's really, really beautifully made. And will definitely get you to love Hellbenders. Can I just say that the Hellbender community is probably, like, the best at naming shit? Like, the <laughs> nicknames and the titles that you guys come up with is just, it's top tier. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, I, I, love the, I love the parody stuff going on. Yeah, with all we're going we're gonna to definitely yeah. be calling this episode The Last Hellbenders as a, a play on The Last Airbenders. Because uh, <laughs> people are going to be like, what's a hellbender? So, every time, especially now in Oregon, every time I mention, like, oh, I did stuff on hellbenders, people are like, what? What did you just say? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do like you know why? Like, do you know place. how they got that name? Yeah. Um. Yes. There's um. There's an old paper from like 1812 that I remember reading that was super cool. That was talking about like the different names for them. Um. And Hellbender comes from an old like Native American name. Um. I don't remember the exact like um like path that took to become Hellbender. Sure. Um. But this paper was really funny because it was talking about how that's like not a name that a, you know, moral man should say. Um, (laughs) And so there was like this other tribe that called them something called like, I think it was Tweeg. Okay. Like T-W-E-E-G. And then for the rest of this paper describing Hellbenders, he calls them Tweegs. And it's like, like, what? I'm so glad they went with Hellbender. Yeah, Hellbender's way better. Yeah. Yeah. Can you imagine you're like the magnificent Tweeg? Yeah, right? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it doesn't have the same. You wouldn't want to put it on a shirt, you know. No. <laughs> yeah, no, that's well, that's cool. Well, yeah, you can find some cool gems looking up really, really old literature describing species. Heck yeah, <laughs> I, bet, I bet I would love to see their artistic interpreta- interpretation of it too, or their yeah, scientific right? sketch. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it. I would. They probably I, depending on who wrote it, it could be either overly embellished or it could be like overly simplified. So like this weird doodle. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, cool. I think we've we've covered everything. Uh, yeah. I think we gotta definitely reach out to some of your colleagues and yeah. see if we can have them on the show at some point and talk yeah. more yeah. avenues. Um, now, is there yeah, anything I mean, that I... you? I'm oh, sorry. Could oh no, go, yeah, go ahead, Robert. That's a good question. Oh, and I was gonna ask: Is there anything that you would else would you like to mention? Maybe to maybe future people who are growing up and want to be you take a path in conservation or biology or just anything that we didn't cover that you would like to kind of get your point across? Um, yeah, I guess since you mentioned that, you know, just this is a real field and a lot of people don't think it is. <laughs> um, really? And so they grow up not thinking that this is a possibility for them, um, oh. that they, they love this kind of stuff, but it's not, it's not a job. Um, and I'm just here, to, like, you can get paid to do grad school. Like, I mean, it's not great, but like right now, you know, I'm a PhD student and I'm salaried with health insurance. Like, it's a thing. You can do it. Um, it's you. You won't ever be rich by doing, you know, wildlife or ecology research. You won't but, be rich in money, but you'll be <laughs> rich in life experiences and happy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but um, doing something that you waking up and not dreading your work is really, really great. You know, I, I've seen my dad just like slave over his work at a 
cement plant for his entire life and come home tired and hating his job every day. And it doesn't need to be like that. Like you can, you can do what you love and that's uh-huh. okay. You can follow your passions and people will tell you that it's not um, feasible and that it's unrealistic, but if you care enough, it's, you can do it. That's a right. fantastic point. I think that is really cool. I mean, uh, there might not be a set path, but there might be a lot of mentors, like you mentioned, who can help you find your way. And if you're dedicated and persistent, you'll find you'll find your way on it. Yeah, find people around you that are like doing things that you f- think are really cool, and you know, just annoy the hell out of them, and be like, "How do I become you? Teach me everything you know." Mm-hmm. And people like sharing their stories and they like passing on their knowledge. Like, I don't think we've come across a single person like, yo, dude, how did, how did you do that? Like, it's a secret, blah, blah, blah. Like people (laughs) want to, it's almost like a legacy kind of thing. Like they want to pass on their knowledge of what they learned. And I think you really got to start operating in those kind of circles to kind of like really come across them. And there's some fantastic people in the biology and the the conservation world um, that would love nothing more than just to like tell their stories and stuff. And I love it. Yeah. And I mean, hellbenders are such a little tiny, tiny part of that. Like you can do, there's so much you can do. Like you think something is really niche. There's like a whole, there's a whole conference for it probably. You oh know? yeah. So there's oh, always yeah. other people. Yeah. Really? A conference? That'd be cool. Yeah, I mean, there's, there yeah, are there's people like- doing research on river turtles, uh, the salmonids, the, the trout species, uh, sure. the sediment of mm-hmm. <laughs> these rivers. Uh, I mean, you start cracking the surface here and you're diving into different layers of groups that like get more and more and more specific as you go down the rabbit hole and you find your people. (laughs) Yeah. There's always a community. Is there like a, like a, when you say the hellbender and like biology and conservation, stuff like that, is there like a, like a Jane Goodall of the hellbender world or like, is there like a, like, Oh man, that guy. Like, is there like a big wig? Um, I don't think so actually there's um there's a lot of people that do a lot of really great work um the original hellbender pieces of literature are by max nickerson out of university of florida um he's still around um but yeah no it's there's a lot of really great people in the southeast um probably kathy johowski Lori williams and shem are the three people that i worked with predominantly um and I know there's Bill Hopkins at Virginia Tech and um, Rod Williams at Purdue, who do a lot of hellbender work. Um, yeah, you can find pretty much every state that has hellbenders or yeah. someone doing stuff. That's so That's cool. So cool. I want one of those shirts so bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think we got we got we gotta find those now. That's gonna yeah. be too cool. For sure. <laughs> well, thank you cool. for joining us. I mean, it's been like it's been a true pleasure and I'm really excited to get this episode. Yeah. Uh, edited and out um is this what you thought yeah. the podcast is going to be like yeah it's i mean i was definitely kind of nervous at first like i felt a little <laughs> fluttery but it's kind of just it turns into like a natural conversation which is nice yeah yeah, I'm, yeah, you're, yeah I'm, you're fine yeah yeah I mean, we, we don't want it so to be too stiff yeah <laughs> but yeah thank you guys so much for reaching out um absolutely yeah this has been great <laughs> awesome well like i said we're gonna make sure we uh, get a couple contacts from your colleagues uh, so we can talk to more yeah. uh, women in science. And for everybody listening today, be sure you guys do something uh, in the positive note for the Hellbender community uh, if you can find some way to help. Um, if not, there's always going to be a local project in your backyard. So from all of us today at Coffee and Conservation, thank you for tuning in. This is your host, Mike. 
with Robert and our guest Lauren today. And we will find you guys on the next episode of Coffee and Conservation. <laughs>